Hi, my name is David, and I have the privilege of serving as the pastor of 6-8 Church in Vancouver, Washington. The following is a message from our Sunday morning gathering that we hope encourages and inspires you in your journey to be more like Christ. For more information, visit 6-8-Church.com. That's the number 6 and the number 8, church.com. All right, Hebrews chapter 12. We read Hebrews chapter 12 this last week. And uh, I want to cover some of the big, the big points this morning as we, as we go through it. Um, but first, a couple of illustrations to kind of set the stage. The army of Alexander the Great was advancing on Persia. At one critical point, it appeared that his troops might be defeated. The soldiers had taken so much plunder from their previous campaigns that they had become weighted down and were losing their effectiveness in combat. Alexander immediately commanded that all the spoils be thrown into a heap and burned. The men complained bitterly, but soon came to see the wisdom of the order. Someone wrote, it was as if wings had been given to them, they walked lightly again. Victory was assured. In 1845, the ill-fated Franklin expedition sailed from England to find passage across the Arctic Ocean. The crew loaded their two sailing ships with a lot of things they didn't need, a 1,200-volume library, fine china, crystal goblets, and sterling silverware for each officer with his initials engraved on the handles. Amazingly, each ship took only a 12-day supply of coal for their auxiliary steam engines. The ships became trapped in vast frozen plains of ice. After several months, Lord Franklin died. The men decided to trek to safety in small groups, but none of them survived. One story is especially heartbreaking. Two officers pulled a large sled more than 65 miles across the treacherous ice. When rescuers found their bodies, they discovered that the sled was filled with table silver. And those men contributed to their own demise, carrying what they didn't need. But sometimes don't we do the same? So we've used this rope several times as an illustration over the course of the series, having our hope anchored to Christ, the the secure hope of Christ, that our hope is not something that we call today wishful thinking, but, but, uh, but our hope is supposed to be anchored in the secured, finished work of Christ and what he did on the cross, and um, kind of a great picture visual with that. And Hebrews uh, 10 and 11, The author was using this phrase, do not throw away your confidence. That phrase is another one of the nautical terms, see if I can get this a little bit untangled, that uh, one of the nautical terms that have been kind of in abundance throughout this book, and uh, that, that word, do not throw away your confidence, means to not cast off your confidence. And so, so if you imagine, like we, we talked about having our hope anchored to Christ, and, and this, is, this is the rope that keeps our ship anchored to the anchor that's in the harbor because Jesus came in and took it as our forerunner. He took it into the harbor in advance, and now we're anchored in the safety and the peace of the harbor. 
So we're supposed to then keep ourselves tied to that confidence. Our confidence is supposed to be secured constantly to that anchor, to that anchor of hope. But in Hebrews chapter 12, the author actually uses that phrase in a different way. He's contrasting what he said in Hebrews 10 and 11, where he says, do not throw away or do not cast off your confidence. So to cast off your confidence would be to say, actual literal image is to take a knife and cut the rope of the anchor, to set yourself free of the anchor. Don't cast off your confidence. But here he says, to throw away, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And over the course of this, of this, uh, this chapter, the author is going to make illustrations about some of the things, I think, that we get ourselves tangled up in. Some of the, some of the sins that, that we can expect to find ourselves tangled in. And the picture is this. It's literally like you are on a ship and, and you're tangled up in all of these ropes. Uh-oh. My mic came off. Now what? And I think, I think the contrast that the author is making is don't find yourself entangled in sin and these things that he's going to describe. Instead, cast this off so that you can be tangled up in hope, so that you can be anchored to hope. I think what the author is, is, is contrasting is that most of the time what we do is instead of clinging to our hope and casting off everything that hinders us from pursuing that hope, we tend to cast off the hope and find ourselves entangled in sin, entangled in the things of this life, entangled in things that hinder. Notice it's not just sin, but it's anything that hinders. There are often, I think, in our society, a lot of things that hinder us. There are a lot of things that we can find ourselves, especially right now with the abundance of options as we've talked about over the last several weeks, there are so many things that we can just find ourselves slowly and slowly more and more entangled in. And it's a little thing here and a little thing there and we eventually we just are overwhelmed because we've allowed ourselves to get tangled up. Sometimes in good, okay things. And what the author is saying, let us throw off everything that hinders. I have no idea how this is going to happen. And I think that's kind of part of the point, is that when you're tangled up in something, it's not always necessarily easy to figure out. But eventually, if you're consistent and keep 
persistent and keep working at it, you can throw off everything that hinders. So he says to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and then let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. I think it would be a good question to ask ourselves, what are we tangled up in at the moment? What are we right now finding ourselves tangled up in? What are the things that, that, that we find ourselves maybe even choked and claustrophobic because we've got so many things that we're tangled up? And maybe good things, maybe, maybe even nice things, but not the right things. And we talked about a couple of weeks ago how we're going to have to start saying no to some things so we can start saying yes to more of God's things. A phrase that I've been trying to remind myself over this past couple of years is that I can do anything, but I can't do everything. I may be able to accomplish anything in my life, but if I try to do everything and try to accomplish everything that I want to accomplish, I'm not going to end up doing anything. I can do anything, but that doesn't mean I can do everything. What are we tangled up in and what do we need to start casting off, throwing off? Pastor friend of mine I've shared before, Mark Shelsky, he says, people don't grow unless they want to and want to enough that they will make intentional changes in their lives. Is that you? People don't grow unless they want to and want to enough that they will make intentional changes in their lives. Is that you? You know, we're on week 11 now of this journey through the book of Hebrews and, and you know, we've put out a lot of information and content over the past 10 weeks and worked hard to try to give you all the resources you could possibly need to to know and understand the book of Hebrews and that as we get closer to God and scripture and understanding him and, and drawing near on a daily basis that God would change us. But one of the things I'm still struggling with is that there, we just don't always want to change. We don't always want to grow. We like, we're kind of comfortable if we're honest with the tangled mess of our lives. We're comfortable with all that and we get used to it and even though we can see some of the dangers of it, there are at least dangers we know. We never really try to be set free of the tangled mess. So what are the things that we're tangled up in? Let us throw that off. Let's Let's throw that off. Why do, we don't need to cling to that anymore. Let's let it go and see what God wants to do when we embrace his hope, when we're anchored, secured, holding fast to his hope. In verse 7 of chapter 12, we come across this phrase, 
This is a difficult one. We're not going to really get into too much detail on it. You can go back this last week's podcast and listen to the episode on this if you want a little bit more insight. But Hebrews 12, 7, in the middle of this talk about discipline, the author says, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? I was disciplined by my father. Our children have been disciplined by their father. They are disciplined because they are my children, and I love them, and I know what's best for them, or at least I know what's better for them. Maybe I don't know what's best, but I know what's better for them than sometimes they know for themselves. And when they make choices that I can see are going to have long-term negative consequences if they continue to embrace this path for their lives, then we discipline our kids when they're making those kinds of choices. It's not because I don't love my kids, it's because I love my kids and I want what's best for them in the long run, even if in the right now that means discipline, if that means doing something you don't like to do, or even punishment. And here the author says to endure hardship as discipline. And remember, he's been talking to the Hebrews who are going through actual hardship. Nothing like we're really going through, although we are going through challenges and struggles of our own. But they were starting to be oppressed and maybe even persecuted for their faith. And the author was noting that they were starting to turn away from their faith. And he's telling them, hey, don't turn away from your faith. Endure the persecution, endure the hardship as discipline because God is treating you as your children. There's, there is something God is doing in you through the hardship. And I think a part of the struggle we have is that we think in our world today is that when things aren't going like we like them to, it must mean God doesn't love us anymore. When when things aren't going our way, well, God has stopped loving me. But maybe the reason we're going, and there are hardships we can go through because of our own stupidity and we're tangled up in sin, but sometimes we might just go through a hardship because God is preparing us for something. And to be able to handle or be ready for what God is preparing us for there's still some things he needs to burn out, some things he needs to consume that are consuming us. So in our lives, I think, even though we have a tendency to see hardship as a negative thing, I do. I struggle with hardship. I get frustrated in hardship. I want, I want, I want things to be going my way now. But I know God wants me to endure the hardship because he has something better for me. Yeah, and I think in the context of Hebrews, I think what the author is, is more addressing um, is perfection because that's been the theme. And it's not so much that the Hebrews are enduring this or he's not calling them to endure this because they have sinned. But I think he would argue, don't sin in the face of it. Don't sin in response to it. Don't, don't turn against Christ in, res- in response to the hardship. Endure the hardship as discipline because the author and perfecter of our faith endured hardship. 
I don't know if that kind of gets in the ballpark. We can talk more afterwards. But God is, I think, the, I think the real emphasis is that God is treating us as his children. Whatever it is, what, whatever the answer to that question is, it's God loves us as his kids and he wants something better for us than we, than we might be experiencing in the moment. And so we should endure the hardship, whatever that might be, as God's loving discipline because we are legitimate, not illeg- illegitimate children. Continuing on, let's uh, cruise through here. Bitter root, this is a kind of an interesting phrase that came up in, in uh, the text, verse 14 and 15. The author says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and be holy. Make every effort or pursue, really work hard towards living in peace with everyone is what that word means. Make every effort, work really hard to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause the trouble, grows up to cause trouble and defi- that defiles many or defile many. Um, some, of the, some of the commentators on this passage are suggesting that there, were, there was some complaining and negative, negative talk, bitterness that was starting to rise up within the group of Hebrews that were starting to rebel and curse Jesus and go back to Judaism. And so he's saying, don't do that. Make every effort to live at peace and make sure that no bitter root rises up or grows up in you to cause trouble and defile many. What is a bitter root? A bitter root refers to an attitude of deep-seated resentment in one's heart that continues to grow and has consequences for others. And uh, and with in the culinary world, what's a bitter root? Onions. Onions. <laughs> Horseradish, coriander. There was another one over here. I'm sorry. Bitter root mountains. What is that? Okay. Well, I was, I was thinking of horseradish, and I remember Peter's example, and uh, yay, you like horseradish? What was wrong with people? You enjoy it? All right. But uh, it was really hard to enjoy the, for me to enjoy the horseradish that was on uh, Monday, Thursday this last year. Okay. But what happens with a bitter root when you put it into something? Even just using onions as an example. It it ruins the flavor of the entire food, right? (laughs) It goes through, it, it works its way through everything, right? Bitterness, a bitter root, Works, its, works the flavor of that bitterness into the whole food, right? 
So if you're cooking with it, and that's what a bitter root would be used for when you're cooking even in this time, you would cook with it to add some kind of flavor to the food that you were, that you were eating, and it would work its, its taste all the way through everything. And so he's saying, don't let, a, don't let a bitter root do that. Don't let a bitter root come in and start to work its way through everything. Instead, make every effort, be diligent, pursue, work hard to live in peace with everyone. Pursue peace. Don't just hope that peace is going to come by accident. Don't just hope that peace will be the result of, you know, of doing some, some things and not being angry at one another, but actually work to pursue peace. And I think in our world, and our culture today, we need to be the leaders of making effort to live in peace with everyone. I think the world desperately needs us to make every effort to live in peace. There is so much angst. There is so much negativity. There's so much bitterness all around us on a day-by-day basis that, that we're constantly bombarded with opportunities to engage bitterness and let that bitterness then start to flow through our lives and saturate our lives where we are now full of a bitter root. But what if we just pursued peace? What if we intentionally sought peace in every situation with everyone, peace with everyone, make every effort to live in peace with everyone? Yeah, there'd be nowhere for the bitterness to go if we didn't embrace it, right? We're going to come back to the idea of the birthright here towards the end. But for now, let's move on to these two mountains. This has kind of been the huge impetus for this series. Um, the two mountains that he contrasts here in, in chapter 12 are the mountain of fear and the mountain of joy. And let me read just a couple of verses to set the stage. Verse 18 of chapter 12 says, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm. And he talks about all the things, what would happen to the animals if they accidentally touched the animals, you have to stone them to death. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. And then this phrase, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have not come to a mountain that, that can be touched and is burning with fire. You're not going to get stoned to death if you touch this mountain. You have come to a different mountain. You have come to Mount Zion. Not to a mountain of fear, but to a mountain where there are thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. You have come to the mountain of the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. We, we've come to a different mountain. We have come to the mountain of joy. I've talked at length about how I've, I've at one point hiked up Mount St. Helens. I, I could say climb, but it's not really a climb like climbing mountains like some people would do. But I, I've, never, I've never hiked or climbed Mount Hood. Has anyone climbed Mount Hood, hiked? Okay. So... I've never done that, and one of the reasons I've never done that is because people die on Mount Hood every year. 
And I am terrified at the thought of being that guy that just accidentally steps on, you know, a little piece of ice that's over a canyon of ice and plummeting down and then dying a cold, claustrophobic death down in the glacier, right? I'm terrified. That, that is a scary thought to me, to think that I could, just by accident, slip down into a crevice. Is it? Well, I'm, I'm too afraid to go to the top. I'm not, I'm not ever going to get there. But what keeps me from ascending Mount Hood is the fear of dying and being the guy on the news that they bring, try to find with a helicopter and then they never do and you just end up buried in the ice. That's the mountain of fear. The mountain of fear is what I don't want to go up to because of what might happen to me if I do. But that's not the mountain that we have a birthright to now because of Christ. Remember our, our, our teaching on being like Christ. We are now, we are co-heirs with Christ. Romans chapter 8, you can go read that for yourself if you'd like. But we are co-heirs with Christ meaning that we have the birthright of the kingdom of God. That is what God has done for us through Christ, the free gift that he gives to us, the grace he extends to us is child, uh, a position of being a child in the kingdom of God. That's our birthright. And part of what I think the author is doing, and he's saying, don't sell your birthright for the sin that so easily entangles. Like, don't, don't sell your birthright to the mountain of joy. Don't give up your birthright as the, a, a part of the church of the firstborn. Don't give up your birthright to this mountain, this Mount Zion that is filled with thousands upon thousands of angels and joyful assembly. Don't give, up, don't give up your birthright to that because you just can't shake the entanglement of distractions or sin in this life. Because the mountain of joy is the birthright for believers. We are the church of the firstborn. We are the koinonia, the fellowship of the firstborn, which is Jesus himself. So we are in fellowship with Christ, which is what we celebrated with communion. We are, we are now united with Christ through the work that he did for us and the grace he extends to us. And now we are in koinonia, fellowship, deep blood, Deeper than blood fellowship as the church of the firstborn. And still I just have this fear that so many of us are, are settling for a vicarious experience. Our, our primary experience with God is through someone else, just like Moses. We're, we're settling for a sermon on Hebrews 12 instead of spending time with God in Hebrews 12 and letting him speak to us. Too many of us are experiencing vicariously something we were meant to experience personally. Maybe this will help. Uh, 
we're, we're Friends fans in our house, and uh, it's almost Christmas time, so it's a great thematic opportunity to share a clip from Friends. So let's, uh, I think we've got the video in here. If we can crank that audio up so we make sure to hear everything, and we'll talk about uh, this scene in just a second. Everyone, if, you, if you're not familiar with Friends, hopefully you're familiar with Friends, but Joey is one of the six friends, right? He has spent a lot of time inside Monica and Chandler's apartment. He, he knows well uh, the, the apartment, and he goes in there all the time without permission to be in there. He has the right, as a good friend, to go into the apartment. But for some reason, he got caught up in the mob mentality and was arguing for something that he already had full access to. He was arguing to get candy when he could have, if he decided, just walked into the apartment and gotten a piece of candy from Monica herself. Joey had every right, and yet he was stuck on the outside. He was not coming in, and he even gave in to the mentality of the mob around him, fighting for something that he already had as a right. We already have, as, as children of God, as sons and daughters of the Most High God, we have as our birthright koinonia fellowship in the church of the firstborn. We have as our birthright the ability to come to Mount Zion and go to God ourselves because of what Jesus has done and is doing for us presently, interceding on our behalf. We can now go into the presence of God for ourselves. We do not have to wait for someone to do it for us. We can go in. It is what we have a right to do. And just because the world around us, the mob around us is trying to convince us otherwise that, that God is this distant figure that just, he's totally transcendent and he cares nothing about us in our current day lives, doesn't mean we have to give in to the mentality that the world is sharing around us. God is not only transcendent, he is also imminent. He is present with us every day and he wants to be with you. He wants you to be in his presence. He wants to draw you near. He wants you to constantly make the choice to draw nearer and nearer to him. Verse 28, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. If you read the devotional on this this last Friday, you know my prayer for us as a church and for all believers is that we get lit up. I pray that all the time. It's God, just light us up. And so I want everyone in here to get lit up, to get, get lit up with the fire of God, to, to get presence and through the presence of God, to be glowing as a, with the presence of God like, like Moses did, to, to come into God's presence and let God's presence glow and make us lights that shine. I want us to get lit up. I pray for that. But there's this thing about fire. The closer you get to it, the more consuming it becomes. Right? I don't know if you've ever been at a, at, at a bonfire, but you know, you can feel the heat 
of a bonfire from quite a distance away. When you've got this great big fire, you can, you can feel the heat from, from 15, 20, 30 feet sometimes. At a great distance, you can start to feel the heat from the fire. And the closer and closer you get to this fire, the more consuming it becomes. We, uh, while I was a worship pastor all the years that I did worship ministry, a lot of times we would have the choir, we'd have the whole worship ministry over to the house for a barbecue at some point during the summer. And and I would cook hamburgers on our, our cheap little grill. And, and I don't know if you've cooked cheap hamburgers on a cheap grill, but something special happens when you do that. And and it's really hard to keep the flames contained, right? And so, but you still got to cook the hamburgers because there's 70 people in your backyard waiting for a hamburger. And so you're flipping these things and you're flipping them. And what I notice is that the closer to the fire my hands get, the more consumed my hands get by the fire. And I would just every year burn all of the hair off of my off of my hands and then sometimes even up my arms a little bit all the hair and it makes such a a wonderful pleasant smell when you do that Um, and you just kind of burn it but like the closer you get and i still experience this from time to time because we use a wood stove at home and you're, you're you're trying to get the wood in there and you have to get it all the way into the back so you can shut the door and sometimes you've got your hand in there and it's just kind of really hot and you know just work as quick as you can to to get your hand out before it's consumed, but the closer and closer you get to fire, the more it consumes you. At the same time, for our God is a consuming fire, you have to get close to fire to be changed by fire. Right? If we keep a safe distance from the bonfire, we might feel a little bit of the heat but we won't be changed by it. On the flip side, if I run and dive into the fire, I'm going to be radically altered by the fire. Right? If I, if I run and I just jump head first into the fire, this fire is going to alter me. Now, don't take the practical application and say, our pastor told us to go jump in the fire. That's not, not exactly what I mean. But the closer you get to it, the more consumed you get. Our God is a consuming fire. And I think the reason the author put this verse at the very end of this section of Scripture when he's talking about the sin that's so easily entangled, is that, is that he's talking about and he's contrasting you know, the Old Testament and the fear of the mountain and, and Mount Zion and the present mountain that we get to ascend, we get to go into God's presence for ourselves. And, and he's making all of these contrasts. He's saying, don't be tangled up in sin. Instead, have your hope firmly anchored to Jesus Christ and, and, and what he's done. For our God is a consuming fire. As you draw near to God, as you continue to draw nearer and nearer into the presence of God, it would be impossible for the presence of God to not start to burn off some of this junk in your life. For this consuming fire and how the consuming fire is used in Scripture is is as a purification or a perfecting process. 
So our God is a consuming fire, and he wants to, the author and perfecter of our faith, make us perfect, or the nautical term, fully outfitted for the voyage ahead of us. He wants to give us everything we need for life and godliness. He wants to give us all that we need to live this kind of life that he's called us to. And the only way to really be able to do that is not to, from a distance, observe God, but to draw nearer and nearer and nearer and nearer to God until God starts to, with his presence, consume the parts of our lives that he doesn't want there. The Old Testament, they could only observe from a distance. They could only stand at a distance, watch, watch God's presence envelop the mountain, hear God's voice booming, feel the earth shaking, and we're terrified. But now what we have is, come to me, draw near to me, come and be in my presence. Come up the mountain, Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. Your name's written in heaven, right? If your name's written in heaven, then come to the church of the firstborn, which is the Mount Zion, which is the presence of God, and he wants to draw you in to his presence more and more and more and more and more and more and more until all the garbage and the junk that we're entangled with is consumed and gone and we're free. Our God is a consuming fire. But you have to get close to the fire to be changed. Our big idea for this week is don't wait in line when you have a backstage pass. And our identity statement is, I will let God change me by drawing closer to him daily. You don't have to wait in line, scalp tickets, and hope that you can get a seat where you can observe God from the distance. You actually have a backstage all-access pass to come in and hang out with God in the green room. So don't wait in line like Joey out in the hallway. Come in. Come in. Draw near and let God change you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the promise of your, your word that now you want us to draw near, that you draw near to those who draw near. But you do not keep us at a safe distance, but that you welcome us into your presence. I ask, Father, that, that we would be those people who, yes, we have the desire to change, but we're also willing to make changes to see that change come to pass in our life. 
that we don't just want to change, but that we're going to intentionally bring about a change in routine, intentionally bring about changes in priorities so that we can actually draw closer and nearer to you on a daily basis. And I pray, Father, that we would stop settling for a vicarious experience when you want us to personally experience your presence. And I pray, Father, that you'd give us just such a deep hunger and a deep desire, a deep passion for more of you in our lives, just an insatiable desire that we are never satisfied with what we know, that we always want more of you in our lives. And I pray, Father, that you would just stir this hunger deeper and deeper into who we are, that we are constantly seeking to know more of you, to be in your presence more, and that as a result of being in your presence as individuals and as a body, that we just glow and we're illuminated with the fire of God as we're lit up by being in your presence. I pray, Father, that you would just give us a, a little bit more hunger than we had last week for the week ahead. And that as we walk into this week ahead, as we set our agenda and our priorities and all the things we have to do in this next week, that at the forefront, at the very beginning, at the very foundation of every decision we make about what we're going to do, how we're going to spend our time, and what we're going to make important would be drawing near to you. We thank you, we praise you. seek more of you and everything in Jesus' name.